the place of free will and accountability in relationship to the sovereignty and the providence of God. If God has the right and power and authority to influence people's wills in answer to our praying, then um, do people have free will and are they held accountable for what they do and so on. So those are the kinds of questions we want to begin to tackle a little more directly tonight. They've been on the table all the way along. If you have ears to hear, the teaching on the providence of God has implied that God does have the right over uh, people's wills and that, in my view, the Bible teaches that the human will is not ultimate, but that God is ultimate. And uh, we, as individuals, are not able ultimately to frustrate the designs of God. We can in the short run, God will suffer us to uh, act contrary to his will, but in the long run, uh, and ultimately, he rules. Now, that's what I think we've seen in the past three months together. But we'll ask that question again tonight in relationship to other passages. Father, I think it's so important that we understand your word concerning the proper place of the human will in relationship to history, conversion, prayer, evangelism, worship. And so I ask, Father, that you would be our teacher tonight, that you would guide us, strengthen our minds to think biblically. I pray that you would guard us from the devil, that he would be banished right now in the name of Jesus from our thought processes so that his age-old work of deception would not hold sway, but that we would be free, men and women, to think truth and to embrace truth and not to be hostile to truth. Help us to be open to mystery where we have to concede our limitations. And so glorify yourself and your sovereignty and your mercy and your goodness to us tonight, I pray. And make this a, a useful lesson for our courage in prayer and evangelism and risk-taking obedience. In Jesus' name, I pray it. Amen. The question I'll begin with is, does God have ultimate influence over the wills of people? And I'm tempted to rehearse all the dozens of texts we've looked at over the months, but I just chose a few here to remind you of what I think the answer is anyway. Lamentations 3. Who is there who speaks or commands and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and evil or good and ill calamity go forth? Now this is a rhetorical question right here. It's not answered explicitly in the text. Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass? In other words, who, 
who gives a commandment or an instruction and has that instruction or commandment come to pass unless the Lord has commanded it. Now, I'm assuming that the answer to that question is nobody. Do you agree with that? <laughs> I think that's the implication of that kind of rhetorical question. When you ask a question that way, you're assuming the answer is nobody. So let's turn it into a statement. If you know the answer to a rhetorical question, you can make the rhetorical question into a statement. And the statement then would be, um, no one ever speaks or commands or admonishes such that it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it. Or another way to say it would be, the only thing that ever comes to pass through human agency is something that the Lord commands to come to pass. So that all of my efforts to do or accomplish are ultimately governed by what the Lord commands to take place. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? So the hard things that happen in your life and the, the easy things that happen in your life, both are from the mouth of the Lord, from the will of the Lord. And the questions or comments about that, I don't, I'm, I'm just choosing about three texts here to, to answer this question with an affirmative. Does God have ultimate influence over the wills of people? And I'm answering yes. And the key word there is ultimate because um, it is very clear that we offend God by the use of our wills. We sin against God by the use of our wills. We act contrary to the revealed will of God by the use of our wills. But I'm saying that ultimately, even when we do that, we do not do it unless the Most High uh, has issued that from His mouth. The next text I thought of was Daniel 4.35. He does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand or say to Him, What are you doing? So he does his will in all things among the inhabitants of the earth. Here's the one other text that's pointed in that regard. Romans 9:14. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on man who wills or runs, but on God who has mercy. Now the context here is um, what ultimately does it hang on whether a person receives decisive saving mercy in their lives or not? And Paul's answer is, it does not depend ultimately on the will 
or the effort. I think that's what running stands for, willing and running here. But ultimately on the God who has mercy. So those are my three texts, just to, to answer what I think has been coming for all these months and has been there, that God is God, and that means that when it comes down to what happens in the world, He is ultimately responsible. Now, um, what should we think about that in relationship to our willing? And I put this sentence up here, God's influence enables our willing, enables, yeah, that's not very good, enables us to will as we ought or enables our willing as we ought. Where does your proper willing come from? Where does your obedience come from? Where do you get the wherewithal to make the choices that you ought to make? And I'm suggesting that God's influence is decisive there. Now let's look at some texts on that. Philippians 2, 12 to 13. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now this is a very rich and important text for understanding how the human act of willing and God's act of willing relate to each other. And this word for is all important because if you reverse the logic of these two verses, you will be a heretic. If you, if you put in here, for example, uh, therefore, Instead of a four, which is the reverse of their, a four, if you say, um, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, and therefore, or as a result of that, God will be at work to will and to work for his good pleasure in your life. So if you make your willing first and foundational, and God's willing consequential, you turn this text inside out upside down. This word for here is very crucial. So the way you, you draw the logic is uh, human willing here, and then it's supported by God's willing here. That's what that word for implies. It's for is on this little pedestal. That's what that pedestal is. And, and this logic, I mean, you, you may find fault with the logic. You may not, it may not fit your worldview. But what it makes clear is that because, just because verse 13 is true and that God is at work in me to will and to work for his good pleasure, you may not biblically draw the inference from that that you must now and may now be passive. 
So many people who want to foist a human logic on these things, they'll, they'll hear half the truth, okay? God is sovereign and works in us to will his good pleasure. Well, then I don't have to do anything. Now, that's, that's a rebel spirit talking there. It's not biblical. Because this text says, let's read the logic backwards. When you read something backwards, you do have to change the conjunctions. So reading it backwards, God is at work in you to will and to do his good pleasure. Therefore, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's not, therefore, stay in bed, because you can't do anything anyway. So that's the kind of uh, cynicism with which many people approach the issue of the sovereignty of God. They'll hear the 13 half of the text, that half, and then they draw cynical conclusions from their own brain about the 12 half, and they aren't biblical. Or they go the other direction. They say, I firmly believe that we must work out our salvation with fear and trembling, and therefore God is not the one who decisively wills and works in my life. He cannot be because I can't make those fit together in my brain. The, the discipline of biblical theology, which you all should be involved in. You don't have to be, you know, sophisticated, university-educated theologian or know Greek and Hebrew to be a biblical theologian. You just have to read carefully and ask questions and ask, answer them and let the text say what it says. And if you can't put it together, live with the tension. I live with lots of tension in lots of areas of my life, including biblical interpretation, because I'm finite. I'm not God. I, I would not, I'm not surprised that there are some things in God's Word that uh, demand a patient tolerance of mystery. So what we've got here are two levels. The first one is a, an imperative for us to work out our salvation, which is interpreted as obey. That's, that's all it means, is obey. Obey uh, as you have always obeyed, so now in my presence, work out. So this is just another word for be obedient to what God tells you to do. Don't kill, don't steal, love your enemy, forgive, pray without ceasing, be aglow with the Spirit, obey God, do what you know is right to do. And so preaching with imperatives admonishing your children to do things because they're right to do is fitting when you believe in the sovereignty of the will of God. But rather than saying, do that because everything hangs on you, you say, do that for God is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So that to be a Christian and to walk in obedience to Jesus is both to be given a mandate and then to have it lifted from us. That's why the, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Not because there's no yoke and not because there's no burden, but when he puts it on you, he lifts it. He carries it. That's, that's the genius of Christianity. I mean, I was talking with Dave Johnson over at Open Door on the phone the other day, and he says he's going to start a sermon series, maybe he's already started it, on James. I said, you're kidding. 
164 imperatives in the book of James. Open door doesn't use imperatives. Do you? He said, it's going to be good for us. 164 imperatives in the book of James. That's a big yoke to wear. That's a heavy yoke. And I'm sure David Johnson's going to find a way to lift it because he believes in grace. And so do I, and so does the Bible. So here's the yoke. Obey. Be an obedient people. Work. Work. But now here's your proper mindset. I'm coming into your life with new covenant grace, and I'm going to enable you. I'm going to work that willing. Now, there's a great mystery here. You've got you to learn to live with this. You're lying in bed in the morning, okay? And the alarm goes off. And, it's, and you set the alarm 15 minutes, half an hour early, so you can have devotions before breakfast. And you're lying there, and you're half paralyzed. And you contemplate the mystery of the human will. <laughs> and you say, do I really, really have the power to say to these muscles, get out of the bed? Can I really do that? Well, God is sovereign, and if he wants me to have devotions, he'll lift me out of this bed. <laughs> but then it says in Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation. So I'm supposed to do it, yet it's God who's going to do it. I, I do this. I used to do this a lot. <laughs> but I've got it down now that I, I can shorten it down a good bit from where I used to be. <laughs> because I, I know that I must make that exertion of will. That's real, folks. It is real. My belief in the sovereignty of God and the ultimate... Uh, rule and influence of God over John Piper's will does not mean I must at that moment will it. And sometimes it takes a tremendous exertion of will to get out of bed or to do a hard thing in your life. And you will it. And you stand up and you put your bathrobe on and you stumble into your study and you open your Bible and you read as well as you can read with your eyes falling asleep. And when you're done, you say, thank you. Don't you? Thank you. You don't say, what a good boy am I. You say, thank you. And the reason you say thank you is verse 13. Because God, in, under, around, through, mystery, I don't know it all, God was doing it. It felt like all me as I willed to get out of bed. But I know, biblically, it was decisively God. God is at work in you to will. 
and to work for his good pleasure. Now, question, comment about that text before I look at another one that's a little bit like it, but somewhat different. That's, a, that's an excellent question and an excellent answer, <laughs> I think. Uh, the question was, the uh, fear and trembling right there, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, is it perhaps less a fear of making a mistake and more a standing in awe of this wonderful reality of verse 13? Uh, I didn't prepare thoroughly enough to give you the places. This little phrase, fear and trembling, with fear and trembling, is used, I think, three other times in the Apostle Paul. Uh, and uh, one of the times is he said he came to the church in Corinth with fear and trembling. And uh, the context seems to indicate a, a kind of real meek, humble demeanor, not at all wanting to be presumptuous or put himself forward, but in a lowly frame. Um, I don't think I'd want to remove from the word fear and trembling all the aspects of being afraid, but I, I certainly don't want to enlarge it so big that it rules out deep confidence in future grace to take care of us. Perfect love casts out fear, and the Lord wants us to love Him perfectly, and yet, uh, when you see what's at stake, let's just use an example of, of, I know right now of three individuals in this church that are walking headlong into sexual sin and are being pursued vigorously by the body, but are resisting it and acknowledging that they are rebels. And we will, if they don't turn around, do church discipline on two of them before too many months, and we need to pray that that. Now, when I see that, I know that's happening, and I know my own vulnerability, my own heart, I think there's that dimension of, as I contemplate obedience during the day, I say, oh Lord, with a kind of fear and trembling, don't ever let me slip that far. Because you talk to these people, and it baffles you. You know, they were walking with the Lord and, and then suddenly they don't care. It's just gone. They don't care. Yes, I know it's wrong. Yes, I know I might go to hell. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that's so scary that it, that may be part of, of the fear and trembling. All of us are vulnerable. If the Lord were to withdraw His grace, and maybe that's what you're saying, this grace is promised in verse... 13. If that were withdrawn from us, we would all drift into irrational blindness and sin. Any other question or comment? Ron? Previous paragraphs make a, a lot of humbling ourselves and taking the form of a servant and, and uh, being lowly in mind, and there, this, this is perhaps then in contrast to pride. And, and, the, and, and the pride of self-sufficiency in particular, I would think. Let's go on to the next. Go ahead.
question is, who is the subject here of to will and to work? I, um, I think this is our willing and our work that God is producing. And the reason I say that is because, because here is God's work. God is at work, and then what he works is the to will and the to work. So this work and this work seem to be different. This is God's doing, and this is what he produces. So I assume these, this is our willing and our work, that God is working. That's my assumption. Let's see it a little bit different here in Hebrews. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, this is a prayer. May he equip you, Christians, with every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I think this is virtually the same teaching, just different, different author. I don't think Paul wrote Hebrews in a different wording. This author is praying that God would equip you with every good thing that you need to do his will. And stop there. So that's one way of praying it. You should pray that for your children. Pray that for your neighbors. Pray it for people. Lord, equip Karsten, Benjamin, Abraham. And I have prayed that, and I've seen God answer that in some spectacular ways in recent weeks that just bring joy to a dad's heart. And this, this could be, this right here, could be a woman named Ms. Litchford. In Barnes, in Griffin, Georgia. It could be uh, a broken back in Irvine, California. Could be. Or it could be something as simple as a dream or a sudden awakening while you read the Bible or. Every good thing to do his will. Here's another way to say it. Working in us. This may be the way he equips us with every good thing. How, this participle right here. You have to ask logically how participles function. By putting different prepositions in front of or different conjunctions like by working in us or through working in us or in order to work within us. You've got to try different ones and then test by the context which you think would be the case. May he equip you with everything good to do his will, working in us. Now, that's, you see, that's the same as this working right here, I believe. From Philippians. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. And that's this to will and to work right here. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. 
And uh, you may remember that through Jesus Christ sermon last fall in our spiritual dynamic. There's so much in this through Jesus Christ and how Jesus is the key to unleashing the mercy of God in our lives and the agent by His Spirit to produce these things. To whom be glory forever and ever because the giver gets the glory. Remember it says in First Peter 4, um, let him who serves serve in the strength that God supplies, that in everything God may get the glory. So the reason Jesus is getting the glory here is because he's the one who is, is uh, through whom God is doing these things, working in us what is pleasing. Which is why, you know, I was, as I was walking over here tonight, I was pondering now, if they were to ask me, what difference does this make anyway? <laughs> does all this thinking and talking about the relative will of God and man, does it make any difference? Well, the first answer to that question, and there are more than one, is that it, if it matters to whom the glory goes, it matters what you believe about this. If it matters to whom the glory goes, because the biblical writers bend over backwards to ascribe glory to Jesus in the context of His working in us what is pleasing in His sight. Let me give you another illustration of that, which I don't have on the overhead from Philippians 1. In Philippians 1, 10, uh, or 9, is a prayer that says, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Now, don't miss this. He's praying that their love would abound more and more. So where does more love come from? God. No point in praying to God that your love will abound more and more if you're the one who's finally responsible. You, God, would you cause their love to abound more and more in all knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is blameless for the day of Christ Wait a minute, I read that wrong. So that, with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruits of righteousness which come through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So you're praying to God that love would abound with knowledge so that they can approve what is excellent, so they'll be filled with the fruits of knowledge through uh, future righteousness, through Jesus Christ, and glory will redound back to God who answered that prayer. So here is another illustration of the fact that um, what is pleasing to God here, namely our obedience, is worked in us by God, through Jesus. <clears throat> That's the fulfillment of the New Covenant. This book of Hebrews is all about the New Covenant. And the New Covenant, you remember, is I will take out of you the heart of stone, I will put in the heart of flesh, I will write my law upon your heart and put my commandments in your mind and cause you to walk in my statutes. Cause you. To walk in my, that's the new covenant. The difference between the new covenant 
in the Old Covenant is not primarily that there are new statutes in the New Covenant, but that there's a new ability given in the New Covenant. Here's a, here is a very, very, very helpful illustration to me. When I see things like this in the Bible, because they're, they're not so much written to make a big theological point, they're just sort of the way Paul thinks when he's not working real hard at a theological point, which shows you where a person really is, I think. He's writing about taking this money up for the saints in Jerusalem here that we talked about on Sunday. Thanks be to God who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he has gone to you of his own accord. Now, let me give you the background. Um, he wanted Titus to go ahead to Corinth to help get the money ready. And he writes to them that... Uh, that that happened and in what frame of mind it happened. Now notice two things that we would probably, if we didn't have the Bible, put in contradiction to each other. Thanks be to God who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. So Paul said the reason Titus was so eager to go ahead and do this ministry and come ahead to you is because God put it in his heart. So when I pray, I use words like, put it in their heart to give generously. Put it in their heart to witness today. Put it in their heart to do this or that. Get your prayer vocabulary from texts. I remember a few years ago, a fellow who was contemplating whether to be a part of this church or not, he, he came and I forget who he talked to on the staff, but they reported to me that he, he just scratched his head every Sunday. He said, what I don't get is the way you pray. Because you pray things like, cause this to happen and cause that to happen. And I don't know if I think God does that. Prayer, Dr. Fuller used to say when I was in seminary, he used to say, if you, the fastest way to get to a man's view of God is to ask him about prayer and to listen to him pray. Well, that's, that's a parenthesis. He says, God put the earnestness into Titus' heart. Then he says, for, he, here's the evidence that God did that. He not only accepted our appeal, in other words, he didn't just do it begrudgingly, because we wanted him to do it. But being himself, 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 hmm. being himself very earnest, he has gone to you of his own accord. Well, of all things. I thought it was of God's accord. When I, when I read that several years ago, I thought, there it is again. Yes. Yes. Now, if you want to call this free will, you are welcome to do that. It's probably not the best word to use. Because I, I think, frankly, most lay people means this by free will, and that's why 
I don't, I, I'm not on a crusade to banish that phrase from your vocabulary necessarily. <laughs> because I think probably most people, when they use free will, that's all they mean. Do we have an accord? Do, do we have a genuine decision by which we decide to go down there to Corinth and we can speak of it of being our accord? It was, it was of my own accord that I did it. Nobody twisted my arm and forced me to go against my will. I think that's basically what lay people ordinarily mean by free will. But sophisticated, careful arguers on this subject mean more than that by free will, which I then have a problem with. Namely, free will in its sophisticated usage is I'm going to run out of the nation. Ultimate self-determination. I think that's what philosophical type people mean by free will. I, I must be free from the ultimate influence of God. I must be the end point in my willing. My willing can't just be real and, and earnest and uh, necessary. It has to be ultimate for it to be what I want it to be or to hold me accountable for anything. Well, we'll, we'll, we can decide whether you think that's the case or not. But I think there is real willing here and it is perfectly compatible with God put it in the heart. He himself was very earnest. He was very earnest and God put it there. He was earnest and God put it there. He went of his own cord, but it grew out of God's initiative. So when he got there and they said, thank you for coming, thank you for coming, he said, it's my pleasure. And the reason I have a heart that delights to minister like this is because God's at work in my life and I give him praise. Any comment about that text, Carl? My biblical understanding of the Lordship of Jesus is that it embraces precisely this. That was the point two Sundays ago when he said, I urge you by the Lord Jesus Christ to strive together with me in your prayers on my behalf that I might not be handed over to the unbelievers in Jerusalem. And I argued that that incentive and that prayer request correspond because the Lordship of Christ means he has the right to keep those people down there from killing Paul. Or he has the right to make Titus want to do what he's supposed to do. So to embrace Jesus as Lord, if you understand it fully, and I think we're all in process here, you know, when you get saved, good night, you know about one-tenth of one percent of what might be helpful to know. Uh, and, and then the rest of your life is growth and by the time we die we might know five <laughs> percent and and 
And the reason we have classes like this is because of my deep conviction is that uh, to grow about 0.4% in your knowledge might be really valuable in your level of devotion and obedience and handling tragedy in your life. So, yeah, the Lordship of Christ over our lives. What, well, the reason I said that is because when you become a Christian and you go in this baptismal pool here and, and I lift my hand and say, do you intend God helping you to follow Jesus as Lord? I really want that word to carry the impact of he has the right and authority to work in me what is pleasing in his sight. Any other, Russ? Okay, the question is, um, there's a group of scholars that have written a book called The Openness of God, which denies God's foreknowledge of free moral acts because they think if you don't deny the foreknowledge of free moral acts, then those free moral acts are certain since God makes no mistakes in what he foreknows. And if they're certain, they're fixed. And if they're fixed, they're not free. So the only way you can save the freedom of man is by denying the foreknowledge of God. And there are many who are taking this route today. And Russ's question is, what's the fault in that logic when they say this view that I'm propounding, Calvinistic view, is, um, um, what did you say? It, it undermines the authenticity of a relationship between us and God. And I would say, what are the prerequisites of an authentic relationship as you understand them? And if they say, ultimate self-determination, I would say, you're making that up. You know, if you come to God with your document written, this is what it will take for me to have an authentic relationship with you, and you lay it on God's table, and it doesn't fit his, you better take it off the table and burn it. Now they come, I really believe Clark Pennant comes with, with that on his paper. In fact, I could show you quotes. I just read it this afternoon, getting ready for tonight, a quote in The Case for Arminianism by Clark Pinnock where he says, logic demanded this, and I went to Scripture to see if Scripture permitted it. That's his approach. That's not my approach. My approach is to see if Scripture demands it, and then I'll adjust my worldview to fit it. So... My answer to your question is uh, God decides what makes for an authentic relationship with him. And he tells me um, the most thrilling, satisfying, eternity-long relationship you and I could ever have is if I put earnestness for me in your heart. And I say, put it in, put it in. And I, if, if he comes and says that, to me, and I said, no, 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 no. The, the only way you and I can have an authentic relationship is if that earnestness arises from me. Sovereignly, ultimately, arises out of nothing from me. 
and then I can offer it to you, and there's real, genuine reciprocity. See, I don't want to belittle too much Clark Pinnock. He's, he's a believer. We're going to be together in heaven, I believe. And, and uh, if he were here tonight, he would say, John, you better take seriously the genuineness of reciprocity in a relationship. And he would say, I make puppets out of humans and other things like that. I mean, his, his writing is laced with pejorative language for people like me. And I don't necessarily want to turn the tables and do the same thing. All I want to say is, I do not prescribe to God what makes for an authentic relationship. He prescribes to me what makes for an authentic relationship. And I personally, we're going to see this in just a minute, I would be dead if it weren't for God. I would be dead in my trespasses and sins. So who am I to prescribe to God anything about what a living relationship is? He would say, you want to prescribe? Go ahead. I'll watch a dead man prescribe, and a dead man prescribes nothing. Zero. A dead man can't even lift his hands. But we need to see that. Now, let's move on and see that. We are slaves to will sin without the influences of God's sovereign grace. We are slaves to will sin. That is, we, we are bound to will sin without the influence of God's sovereign grace. These are familiar verses, and this is a familiar truth for, for many of you. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That's a frightening thing. We not only are, are morally, spiritually dead, apart from grace, but we can walk around in this deadness. And as we walk around and will, we will things in this deadness, we are in accord, doing it in accord with the course of this world. We are doing it in accord with the prince of the power of the air. That spirit, the devil, is now working in. Isn't that just the opposite of what we lived in the lusts of your flesh? indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. So I'm dead. My deadness is experienced as harmony with the course of this world, harmony with the prince of the power of the air, and thus I am by nature doomed and under the wrath of God. It's my nature even as the rest. And then I remember old V. Raymond Edmund wrote the little devotional called But God. And he chose all these sentences in the Bible where you hear the bad news and then you hear this But God. This is one of the best. But God, in spite of all this bad news here, being rich in mercy because of the great love 
rich mercy, great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead. See, he's prescribing here, not me, we're dead. I'm not bringing anything to this table. In our trespasses, trespasses made us alive. That's, that's my only hope. God made us alive. So you all in this room right now who are born of God should look back whether it happened like me when you were six and you can't even remember it or maybe it was when you were 40 and you remember it glowingly or 18 or 17 like Tom Steller what happened to you though you may not have known it or articulated it is that a miracle of new life was imparted to you and the deadness of rebellion and resistance and indifference suddenly was gone. It was gone. And you were reading the Bible differently. You were listening to the sermons differently. You saw the world differently. And you, you believed. Here's another illustration of this condition being changed. The mind set on the flesh is death. The mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. This hostility this refusal to subject is so deep that you are morally unable. That's what it means to be dead. That's my understanding of dead in trespasses and sins. Not able to submit to God. Not able to. Now, if you ask, how can you be held accountable to do something you're not able to do? It's a reasonable question. You must distinguish two kinds of ability. I brought along this book just as a show and tell because I don't expect anybody to read it. Maybe one or two. This is the most important book that's ever been written outside the Bible on the freedom of the will. Bar none. Without exception. I don't doubt that that's a true statement. This is Jonathan Edwards' The Freedom of the Will. It's the hardest book you'll ever read and you'll never be the same again if you read it. It costs 40 bucks or 50 to buy over at Luther Northwestern. And so I just brought it along to show it to you. <laughs> uh, but Jonathan Edwards helpfully and biblically makes the distinction between moral inability and physical inability. Physical inability is if you are chained to a chair and somebody says, get up. And you pull, you jerk and you pull and you say, I can't. And well, if you don't get out of the chair, I'm going to shoot you dead. So, well, shoot me dead because I'm, 
I'm not responsible to get out of this chair because I'm chained in. And we would all say, right, he's not responsible to get out of that chair. Unless maybe he locked himself in or something like that. But anyway, moral inability simply means this. And you have to ask whether this exists or not. It's a biblical inference that he draws out, but then he tries to see it in real life. Moral inability is when you are so bad you can't will good. You are so morally deformed and corrupted that you can't prefer good over evil. Now, the can't is real, but it's different. You're not saying, I don't have the mental capacities to perceive the good, and I don't have the brain to construe that. See, I would say infants and imbeciles are um, physically incapable of some of the commandments of God because they can't process the good. My little Talitha, if I say to her, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, she doesn't know what I'm saying. She does not have the physical brain perceptive categories yet for that, she's almost got the category that this little six-inch tall, two-inch wide white thing with the yellow top deserves a... <laughs> that's about as far as she's got. So it, it doesn't... It doesn't uh, so I don't, I don't think the Lord will condemn her for not believing on Jesus at this stage. But there'll come a point where... She'll have the physical wherewithal to construe the message, perceive the good, and be so bad she can't believe it. That's a possibility that I will pray against every day for the rest of my life, probably. So, in answer to the question, how can you be held accountable for something you're not able to do? This is moral inability here, and you are held responsible to do what you ought to do, even if you're morally so bad you can't do it. You are responsible to do what you ought to do, even if you're morally so bad you can't do it. The can't being a moral can't, not a physical can't. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There it is again. Cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The reason I included verse 9 here, the next verse, is to show you what in the flesh means. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if the Spirit of God dwells in you. In other words, if you're a Christian. If the Spirit of God dwells in you, you're not in the flesh. So what liberates you from being in the flesh and thus unable to submit to God is the Spirit of God moving into your life. that's another text like Ephesians 1 that portrays our condition, our wills as dead and uh, hostile and unable to submit to God apart from God, Spirit of God coming in. Question or comment about that text? Deanna? Pharisees? 
Um, the Pharisees had numerous faults beneath their... Jesus said, you are, you are whitewashed tombs, and inside it is full of rapaciousness and dead men's bones, greed. He said, you are those who love money, Luke 16. They love money. You are those who like to stand on the street corners receiving the praise of men. They love the praise of men. In other words, there was a roiling evil beneath this external religiosity. Their motives were wrong. They did not love God. They did. In fact, Jesus in John 8 went so far as to say, if uh, they, they said, uh, if God were your father, see, you don't know God. If Abraham were your father, you would do the works of God. You don't even know God. I can't remember the exact text there. But here they are. They, they're living their whole lives in devotion to what they believe to be God. They're giving their sacrifices, memorizing 632 or whatever commandments, and bringing their external lives as much as they are able, they say, into conformity with these commandments. And Jesus says, uh, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. So they are inside slaves. They are, not, they are hostile to God. And Jesus says, if, if God were your father, you would love me because I come from the Father. Jesus made himself the litmus paper of love to God, which is what I would say to the Jewish community today and get myself in big trouble. And I think we should say it with love and compassion and persuasiveness, but if you reject Jesus, you don't know God. I'd say that to every human being in the world, Jew or Gentile. If you reject Jesus having been presented with him, then you don't know God. The God that you think you know is an idol and is keeping you from the true God. So they were blind. Blindness is, let me see, I think we're out of time. We have two minutes by my watch, maybe four if I'm fast. Let me show you blindness here. Here we go. This is, this is the text we'll end on. This is a beautiful text because it shows the the desperate condition we're in, but a beautiful work of grace that saves. 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. So that's what, what was happening. That they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So the reason they're not saved is because they don't see the light of the gospel and it's what gospel? The gospel of glory, the glory of Christ. Who is he? He's the image of God. So the gospel is uh, the glory, is beholding the superior glory of Christ over all competitors and recognizing in him the image of God and the reality of God. And, and Satan is doing his best in this world today and in all of our lives to keep us from seeing the brightness of that glory. 
For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. So Paul said the center of our ministry is not to put ourselves forward, but to put this Jesus forward so people can see his glory. And then here comes a beautiful statement of how conversion happens. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Now I think that's rightly in quotes here from Genesis 1. Let there be light. Was it four? Uh, let there be light. So he's saying, the God who said, let there be light, when there was no light, only darkness in the universe, is the one who, in a similar way, has shown in our hearts to give the light the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now compare verses 4 and 6. Light goes with light. Gospel goes with knowledge. Glory of Christ goes with glory of God in the face of Christ goes with the image of God. Those are, those, verse 4 and verse 6 are saying the same thing, but the difference in wording is really helpful in shedding light on what the words mean. But here's the point. How do you move from being a person who's blinded in unbelief by the God of this world so that you don't see answer? God's got to go into your heart and say, let there be light. Or Lazarus, rise from the dead. Awake, O sleeper from the dead and Christ will give you light Ephesians 5 so here's what happened to me when I was six years old or somewhere along the way if that wasn't exactly the decisive converting point somewhere along the way in your life and my life the God who said let there be light when there was no light in the universe and it came to be did the same thing in your heart he said shine light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And at that moment, Christ became glorious to you. He became glorious to you. Let me close by saying, this, saying it this way. I believe that God governs the will reasonably or rationally. That's risky to use that language. And all I mean it is, is this. Um, he operates, like I said Sunday morning, by putting truth in the mind and granting the will or the mind as it connects with the will to perceive the superior desirability of truth. That's reasonable. Reasonableness is when you have reasons for acting the way you act. So if somebody says... Uh, why do you follow Jesus? The reasonable answer is Jesus is more glorious than any other candidate to be followed. That's the reason. He is more glorious. He's more attractive. He, he offers more. He is more. That's a reasonable response. Now, they may disagree with you, and they may argue you can't know that. And you, you can come back and say, well, you can't know anything about your ostensible reasons for living either then. 
that there are different reasons for knowing. But it, what I'm saying is, my will was influenced to be drawn out to follow Jesus, not irrationally, like, well, somebody says, why are you doing this? Well, I don't know, I just feel pushed. That's no honor to Jesus. He does it by opening the eyes of my heart to behold, Christ loved me. He was an incomparable human being. He did things nobody else could do. He spoke with authority like nobody else could speak. He loved like nobody else loved. He took the sins of the world upon him and he bore them and he rose from the dead to vindicate that. And I can't walk away from that. That's the way your will gets drawn out. You, I enter the pastorate because on one October night in 1979, about 1 a.m. in the morning, I could no longer resist the glory of it all. And I'm kept in it by perceptions of how exciting it is to minister to people in this truth. And if that ever shut down on me, if my mind's eye ever closed up on me, and I suddenly looked over here and saw, why don't you take your gifts and make money? You could buy lots of things. I'd, I'd do it. Because you do what your mind perceives to be the most attractive thing to do. And so God moves your will with truth. He thus moves, he moves you by overcoming your blindness. And so you are not a puppet. You are not a puppet. Puppets are people who are blind in unbelief following their erroneous affections. Christians have been opened onto truth and reality and are reasonably responding to it, and their wills are engaged energetically to say yes to what God has enabled them to see. Let me pray with you before we go. Lord, our great passion for 1996 at Bethlehem is that it might be a converting year, that all of us might so pray and so live and so speak into the lives of other people that you would be pleased to use us to open their eyes and win them to reasonably affirm that Jesus is Lord of their lives. Lord, make it a powerful year of evangelism, powerful year of prayer, and a powerful year of working in us and in them what is pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.